Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. I heard a question this last week that I haven't been able to get out of my head, so I want to share it with you this morning. Wouldn't it be awesome to have Jesus as your pastor? Like, think about that for a second. Wouldn't that be cool, you know? Like, you know, maybe I'm, I'm having some hard times with my wife, maybe, and we sit down in front of Jesus. We're like, Pastor Jesus, like, can you help us understand marriage? He's like, well, yes, I can. I invented it. <laughs> like, imagine Pastor Jesus at a Super Bowl party. Yeah. Like, Pastor Jesus, we're out of Doritos. Bam. <laughs> people be like, most people put the best Doritos out first, but you have saved the good ones for last. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, imagine calling him up, Pastor Jesus, something's wrong with my dog. Oh, you'll come, bring your healing powers? Awesome. Cool. Pastor Jesus, something's wrong with my cat. Pastor Jesus. Click. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Cats are wonderful and stuff. But no, for real, like, the best part about it would be Jesus as your preacher. You know, like, every week he comes and, and he stands up here and he opens this book, which he's, you know, responsible for, and he explains how it points to him and how to live it out in your lives. How cool would that be? You're like, you would get rid of Mark and me in a heartbeat, no question. Like, you may like us, you may even be related to us, and we'd be gone. Like, it's over. You know, Jesus is your pastor, I'll take it. And what's weird, though, the guy who asked the question then pointed out this fact. According to Jesus, you're better off with us. Let me, let me say a little bit more clearly, according to Jesus himself, I'm not even kidding, according to Jesus himself, we are better off because he went away. No joking. He says this. We're going to be in Acts 6 and 7 today, so if you want to open your Bibles or, or uh, you know, however you access the scriptures, turn there. That, that's great. Uh, I want to read a verse to you quickly, though, from, from the Gospel of John. It's towards the end of Jesus' life, chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus is about to go. He's about to die and go be with the Father, and he knows this, and his followers are starting to catch on, and they're sad. They don't think this is a good situation. We would rather you be here with us, Jesus. We like campfire time. We like asking you theological questions. We don't always understand what you're saying, but we like being around you, and you're leaving, and we're sad. And here's what he says to them, John 16, verse 7. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Wow, like what could cause Jesus to say that? Some translations say it is to your advantage that I am leaving, that I'm going away. Like how is it possible that it's better for people here if Jesus is gone? One answer, two words, Holy Spirit. He calls him the advocate or the comforter in this verse. The rest of the verse says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if if I go, I will send him to you. We're better off with Jesus gone because Jesus leaving means the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit might be the most underappreciated doctrine in Christianity. At the very least, it's probably, he's probably the most underappreciated member of the Trinity. We believe that God is triune, which is weird and mysterious, but it's what the Bible reveals. It's how God has shown himself to us. that He's one being, one essence, and yet in some way tri-personal. Three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, we understand this. And Think about how you describe yourself. If somebody said, so who are you when it comes to faith? You might say, I'm a, I'm a believer in God, or I'm a worshiper of God. You'd describe yourself this way. That's not abnormal. Or you'd probably say, I'd probably say, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. But I have never described myself as a follower of the Holy Spirit. Have you? 
I don't just, I've never even heard that. And yet it's not any different really from saying I'm a worshiper of God or I'm a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's there as well. I've often said that the Holy Spirit is kind of like the crazy uncle at a Christmas party. You're glad he's there. He's sitting over there in the corner. You're not quite sure what to do with him. He's got his red cup and all seems well in the world, you know. I heard somebody say recently that I think about my, 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 the Holy Spirit sort of functions in my life similar to my pancreas. I'm generally aware of its existence. I have some understanding of what it's there for, but I don't often give it a whole lot of thought. And yet Jesus would say, this is not a great situation. Jesus would say, the reason you're better off with me gone is because it means the Holy Spirit is here with you, in you. And the Holy Spirit is God's powerful presence in you. This brings us to the book of Acts. We're studying the book of Acts this summer, but we're doing so a little bit different than normal. We're not walking through it piece by piece. We're in the series called Actors, where we're looking at different characters in the story, and we're asking how we can find important wisdom for our own lives by looking at theirs. And we, we kind of knew what was coming a little bit when we first planned this series, but it's been even more in one direction than we thought it would be. It's been even more like less about the people and more about the Holy Spirit. It was designed to be a character study in the book of Acts, and it's turned out to be all about the character of the Holy Spirit. He's always the hero in these particular stories. And the book of Acts helps us understand some of this dynamic between Jesus not being with us and yet kind of being with us. If, if you look at how the book begins, the very first verse, Luke is writing it, and he just writes in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Well, look at that verse for a second. Look at the words on there. I see some of, my, some of my students in the room. I think they could probably answer this question if I asked them, what is the most important word in the, this first verse in Acts? It's third service. We could do this. Jacob, holler it out. Began. began. You might have missed it. Began. I think the word began is the most important word in this verse. Think about this for a second. Luke is writing this book, Acts. He's the one who wrote the gospel of Luke. He wrote them both to this guy, Theophilus. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, think about that statement for a second. The former book is the gospel of Luke, which is the longest of all the four authorized biographies of Jesus. It starts the story before his birth. It ends the story at his ascension. He's the only one who covers that much territory. And he tells more details from the life of Jesus than all the others. Luke has said a lot about Jesus in his gospel. And he starts Acts by saying, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Implication is, now I'm going to write about what Jesus is continuing to do through you. How's he going to accomplish that? Well, we find our answer a few verses later. Acts 1, verse 8, it's the theme verse of the whole book. Jesus is just about to leave, and he says to his disciples, right before he goes, he says, you will receive power. That's going to be an important word for us, power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts telling us why it's good for us that Jesus is not physically present here on earth because he's with us through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And this brings us to the story of Stephen. His story is told in Acts chapter 6 and 7 and it's, there's a lot in there. Much to learn from this story. We're not even going to try to capture all of it because we'd be here all day and we'd probably find ourselves overwhelmed. What we're going to do, though, is I want to give you a big overview of the Stephen's life as we know it. And then after we've talked through the story as a whole, we're going to try to pull out for ourselves some truths that this text communicates to us today. The story of Stephen begins in chapter 6 with a conflict. 
Uh, the early church is going along and they've been growing and thousands of people are, are believing in Jesus and it's awesome. They're taking care of each other. They're sharing their resources, making sure everybody has what they need. And one of the things that they decided to do was to set up a system where they would distribute food every day to the widows in the church. Those whose husbands had passed and were not able to take care of them, those who needed assistance, they would take care of them by providing with them food. There were two groups of widows in this church, those that spoke Hebrew and those that spoke Greek. Now, those that spoke Greek kind of felt like they were not getting fairly treated. They felt like the Hebrew-speaking widows were getting the better food or getting more food or whatever. And so they said, we got a problem here. Things are not, things are not kind of working well between us. It's not Okay. And the apostles who were leaders of the church at the time said, you know what, you're right. That's not good. We want to make sure everybody gets what they need. What are we going to do, though? Because there's only so much time in a day, and we got a lot going on. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick seven men to lead you in this and to oversee the system. We're going to divide out the labor, improve our organization. We're going to pick seven men to lead in this capacity so that we can focus on teaching the word and praying. And so they chose seven men whom everybody respected, and Stephen is the first name on the list. You guys respect him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You guys good with him? No question. Okay, he's our man. That's when we meet Stephen. He's a person that other people look up to. He's a person that you would trust. He's a person that you would say, I think that guy's going to have my best interests in mind. Good guy. A lot of people like Stephen. Um, Not everyone. I want to pick up the story in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Things are going to heat up a little bit at this point in the narrative. Acts 6, 8. Now Stephen, this is our guy, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So, verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council of the day. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops talking against this holy place, that's the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen has done nothing wrong, but some people create some false accusations, and they misconstrue his words, and they get him into trouble. And after he's standing before them looking like the face of an angel, the high priest says to him, what do you say? Do you have anything to say of these charges? Are they true? And Stephen launches into a sermon. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's long, though I encourage you to read it later on. What Stephen does is in this sermon, which is most of chapter 7, we'll look at the conclusion here in a second. What Stephen does in most of this message is he walks back through the history of God's people. The history of God dealing with Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and, um, and all the others. Moses is a focus, these kind of things. And he walks through drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus was always where the story was going. And in particular, he tells all of these stories in a way that reminds us that the people who were on the right side were mistreated. That those who actually were were doing what God wanted them to do were often misunderstood and abused and sometimes even attacked by the people who should have listened. 
you can understand why he's making that point in this situation. So he goes back through the whole story saying, if you're going to come at me, recognize that you're on the wrong side of all of these events. And then he comes to his conclusion. I've never concluded a sermon like this. I promise I'm not going to today. And I don't anticipate ever doing it in my life because of what happened to him. So let's look at what he says. (laughs) Verse 51. Here's towards the end of the message. You can tell when the message is about to end. You know what I mean? Like we, I don't know, there's something, something about it. Like, okay, like, okay, we're coming to a close here. You could tell this one was about to come to an end. You stiff-necked people, he says. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Well, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. That's quite a conclusion. They responded how you would expect. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. For Jesus to be at God's right hand means that he is victorious. He has won the victory and he is in the position of power. For him to be standing means that he is honoring this man down below and he's offering his own verdict on who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Look, Stephen said, verse 56, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When, we had, when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's not a particularly happy story. Sorry, this is not a very good Father's Day message. <laughs> But there are two truths that come out of this story that are pretty critical for each of us if we're going to rightly understand what it means to do life with God, what it means to live in this world and to try to be faithful to Jesus. The first truth is followers of Jesus should expect to suffer. I wish it were otherwise, at least a part of me does, but, but it's not. I know it's not a happy thing to hear, but it's true. Generally speaking, we're on safe ground in saying that if you follow Jesus, you will experience hardships that you wouldn't follow if, that you wouldn't experience if you didn't follow him. Followers of Jesus should expect to suffer. Jesus himself said in John 15, look, those who hated me are going to hate you as well. It's just just the way it's going to work. Don't expect everybody to think well of you if you follow me. Paul, in the very last letter he wrote, summarizes something he knows all too well. And he says it's not just for him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see the same thing here in Acts. And we're not walking through it chapter by chapter, but if we were, you'd notice that things have kind of started to heat up a little bit. Back in chapter 3, there's some conflict and, 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 and words are exchanged. Stop doing what you're doing. Well, they keep talking about Jesus and so then they, they give him a beating. Stop doing what you're doing. They arrest him. Stop doing what you're doing. And they keep talking about Jesus. And now it's reaching this point where we've gone from words, debated, to, to actual some sort of physical attack, some legal threats, to death. Stephen's story, it's not very long in the large scheme of things. We only have sort of three portions. He's here, he's great, he's gone. End of story. And Acts tells us something that has been true for centuries. It was like this from the start. It's called martyrdom. Maybe you've heard the word. Choosing death over disobedience. 
being faithful to Jesus to the point of losing your life on account of that faithfulness. And since the beginning, believe it or not, martyrdom has always been understood as one of the normal ways the life of a follower of Jesus comes to an end. Whole books have been written about the martyrs, these heroes of faith whose stories are equal parts maddening and heartbreaking and inspiring. I think about a woman named Felicity. Now, that's how we would know her. Her name in Latin was Felicitas. She lived in the second century. It was a time when, when Rome was still ruling the world, and she was a follower of Jesus. She, too, was a widow. Uh, her husband had died. She had seven sons. All of them were old enough to have their own faith in Jesus. They were following Jesus' family. And she was a person whose faith was so active and whose love for God was so powerful that other people would look at her and say, I want some of what she's got. And it was a regular occurrence that people who were worshiping the Roman pagan gods and goddesses would stop worshiping them and would start worshiping Jesus. The church loved this. The authorities did not. Actually, word got to the emperor that this was happening. And so Antonius, who was in charge of the empire, sent this governor down to where she was to say, like, stop it. We need you to show that you're faithful to our gods and goddesses. So he comes to her, and he doesn't want to kill a woman and her children, her, her sons. He doesn't want to do this. And so he says to her, just, just bow down before the statue, like offer a sacrifice, and it's going, to be, it's going to be fine. You could save your life. You could save your sons. And she said to him, do not try to threaten me, because your threats will not work, nor will your smooth talk. And she actually said, God's spirit will make me strong and able to overcome all of your attacks. He was furious, and so he went to bed that day and woke up the next day. Again, didn't want to do this, came back to this woman, said, you got one more chance. You don't even have to mean it. Just get down on your knees, burn some incense, everything's going to be fine. She said, don't even think about it. He said, but your sons, she looked at her sons and said, my boys, look up to the heavens where you see the faithful one awaiting your faithfulness. He will not turn his back on you. Do not turn your back on him. And they didn't. They beat the mom and then made her watch while they tortured and executed all seven of her sons in front of her face before taking her own life, and she was fine. You hear stories like this, and you think that sounds like a different world. You know what I mean? And yet it's not. It's not. It's been a few months, but not too long ago, a man named Ajay Lal preached here at our church from India and told stories of people who had given much for the faith. He's not making those things up. Remember in January of 2013, I had an opportunity to go over there to India, to Damo, where his ministry is. And I remember sitting in a room with four people and each of them told their stories of things they had lost. I remember hearing this woman through tears talk about how these, these, these extremists had come into their village and her husband was a pastor and they knew. And so they poured kerosene over him and, and, and lit a match. She showed me the scars on her head and her hands from the fire flickering off and catching her. She was weeping because she missed her husband. She missed her children. But there was no way she was turning her back on Jesus. It's been this way from the start, and it'll be like this till the end. You and I I may never face certain death for our faith. I I don't know. Maybe, but chances are low. But if you remain faithful to Jesus, your life is not always going to be easy. And I'm not trying to compare our sufferings with others. That's not the point. The point is, though, for you and I, there will be times in our stories when those stories get dark because other people don't like the fact that we worship Jesus. You might get looked at funny. You might get laughed at or talked about behind your back. You might lose some friends. You might not be invited to certain meetings or parties. You may be denied entry into certain clubs or groups. You you might get labeled. And not by good things. 
I, I don't know, you could get beat up, maybe even thrown into prison. Many of you will be less successful, make less money, live in smaller houses and drive older cars than you would if you were otherwise. Just let this Jesus stuff go. Some of you are going to feel like you don't belong because, like, well, you don't. And when this goes down, what happens for most of us is that we get a case of the life would be easier if syndrome. <laughs> life would be easier if I could just go back to the way things were when I didn't take my faith seriously. Life would be easier if I could just ease up a little bit on some of the Jesus stuff. How are you going to hold your ground? How are you going to make it? How are you going to stand firm in those situations? Same way they did. Same way Felicity did. And Perpetua. And Polycarp. And Dirk Willems. And John Huss. And so many others whose stories we probably won't get to hear until we get to heaven. Same way Stephen did. It's the second truth coming out of this story, and it's actually the most important one. So it's what I'd like for you to try to remember, because someday you're going to need it. Truth number two, the Holy Spirit empowers us to suffer like Jesus. There's a power that is in you, whether you know it or not, because the Holy Spirit is in you. And that power enables you to suffer like the one who died on behalf of the entire world, Jesus. Did you notice that Stephen's story looks a lot similar to Jesus's? It's almost like a remix. You kind of hear the the tune and you wonder, I've heard this before. He's innocent. He's falsely accused. He's charged of blasphemy. He prays a prayer committing himself to God. He prays a prayer asking God to forgive those who are hurting him. I mean, this is Jesus' death part two, except now it's Stephen. And you also can't miss the consistent, empowering presence of, you guessed it, the Holy Spirit. From start to finish. Flip back and take a look at this. Let me show you some of the places where the Holy Spirit shows up. Right at the start, in the choosing of the leaders, chapter 6, verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over them. A couple of verses later, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. On down, verse 10, he's being opposed by certain of a synagogue, and he says, but, and Luke says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Jump down to the end. It's not just the beginning. It's the conclusion too. verse 55. When they were furious and gnashing their teeth, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you what you're going to do when you face these situations. You're going to endure. That's how it works. Now, how does it actually like go down? What are the mechanics of this? Well, there's a mind element to it. There's a sense in which it's it's like mental, like the spirit reminds you of certain things you know that are true. That happened in Stephen's case. The spirit reminded him of all sorts of important truths. You can see him in his sermon. Spirit reminded him that, think back to the story, all the whole time, those who were faithful sometimes didn't necessarily have an easy way about it. Those who people were looking at saying, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong, actually were in the right. He reminded Stephen that, that the point of the whole story, the temple, the law, all of it was Jesus. And so the one you're suffering for isn't some bit part. He's the main actor. He's the main event. He reminded Stephen that the one that we're suffering for actually defeated death and sits at God's right hand victorious and doesn't just sit but stands offering judgment on us in our attempts to be faithful and offering a verdict that we are actually in the right and there is a reward awaiting us. Yeah, there's a thoughts part to this. Part of what the Holy Spirit will do in those moments is remind you of certain things that are true, but there's no need to overthink it. 
Because it's not always the case where we can just sort of calmly, patiently think about it. Sometimes you don't even know why. You just find yourself filled not with ideas, but with power. We find ourselves equipped with the power to persevere, the power to keep the faith, the power to endure. Don't forget Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And don't forget what Mark said last week. I love this. I wrote this down. What they were able to do in the book of Acts, we can do today. Why? Because we have the same Holy Spirit living in us. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power, even when under fire, to witness to the truth like Stephen, who witnessed to the truth like Jesus. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power, even when, even when hated, to love like Stephen, who loved like Jesus. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power, even when staring at a rock flying at our face, or looking down the barrel of a gun, to stand firm like Stephen, who stood firm like Jesus. Where do we go from here? What do we do with this story? If you are currently experiencing hardship because of your faithfulness to Jesus, endure. Stand firm. Let your ankles be made strong because you have power in you and you can do this. Remember the story of Stephen and the stories of people like him. Remember what is true that you're not left to your own devices. It's not just about you pulling on your own resources and intelligence and courage and wisdom. No, you can do this because the spirit of God lives in you. So stand firm, hold the line, endure. And if you're not currently experiencing suffering or hardship because of Jesus, well, for one thing, we pray for those who are. We're one with those who are currently in the middle of the mess. And we also prepare. We get ourselves ready, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, The better you are prepared now, the more equipped you'll be to stand firm in the moment because this absence of hardship that we're currently experiencing probably won't last forever. I'll be honest with you, I don't know what's coming down the pipeline for us, for the American church. I'm not a prophet, nor am I an alarmist. And I don't mean to get anybody up in arms. It's not my purpose, nor do I think that's a part of what we should be doing. But when I look down the barrel of history, I don't necessarily see things getting better. Again, God can do whatever he wants, but I'm not necessarily preparing for it to get a whole lot easier for me and my kids and my grandkids to follow Jesus even here. It could get ugly. It very well may hurt. But I'll tell you this, no matter what comes or when it comes, come what may, as they say, we will not be afraid. We we must not be afraid. We have no reason to be afraid. Do you know what the most often repeated command in scripture is? I love this. It's not what I would have expected. It's not Don't sleep around. It's not have good friends. It's not obey your parents. It's not worship God. It's do not be afraid. Somebody counted and said that there are 365 occurrences of this command to do not be afraid. Apparently, we need one for every day, right? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The others are important. They're all in there and they're good, but this is the one that is most often repeated. Why? Because while life with God is far better, it is not necessarily easier. Because in the face of persecution, when you're looking at the threat of losing something that you care about, our fundamental choice is between faithfulness and fear. So like Joshua, like David, like Jesus, like Stephen before us, we will be strong and courageous. We will not be afraid. If there is one word that stands out to me when I read the stories of the martyrs, it's courage. Not like fake courage, not macho, puff your chest out type courage, not liquid courage, Holy Spirit courage. Why aren't they afraid? Because they know that the one who is in them is victorious and that the victorious one lives in them. Why aren't they afraid? 
Because they know that life is short and eternity is already on the way. Because we are better off without Jesus at our side. Because his absence means that the Holy Spirit resides within us. Because the Holy Spirit empowers us to suffer like Jesus. So when you face this, and it will come, do not be afraid. Stand firm. Do not be afraid. Persevere. Do not be afraid. Endure. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.